Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Good morning, and welcome to The Art of Software. I'm your host, Martin Lacey, and today's show, we're going to talk about uh, service-oriented architecture, microservices, and software as a service, what these are and how to build modern implementations. We'll explore how the software architectures have changed over the years, where SOA, service-oriented architecture, fits in, and how you can design for it in your business applications. Where service software as a service also fits in, and how you can build those. We're going to run through all these bits and pieces. But before we get going, let me just sort of run over what uh, the definition of these things are according to Wikipedia. Now, uh, software as a service is a software licensing and delivery model in which software is licensed on a subscription basis and, a cent- and is centrally hosted. Now, that's quite interesting in and itself. Now, the common delivery models right now, or uh, we're at the dawn of the software as a service um, concept, were packaged. So, and we still have a lot of software out there that is packaged. Most of it is packaged. So it's a different delivery model. Um, software as a service resides on a subscription basis, so you pay for it over time. Uh, you don't ever own it. You just get a license to use it. Um, so, you know, building the software is it different than building any other type of software? Not really, but we'll go over that as well. Uh, in terms of service-oriented architecture, well, this is a style of software design where services are provided to the other components by application components through communication protocol over a network. Not, not, not necessarily the internet, but any network. So these concepts um, can work together and they don't necessarily have to. So uh, today, uh, how we build the systems is based on these evolved concepts. Um, Surface-oriented architecture is a evolution of an architecture, not the revolution of a software development paradigm. In today's show, what I'm going to do is walk us back through history so that we can see how the architectures and design paradigms have changed over time and how we came to the service-oriented architecture that we now use uh, and where we're going with it in the future. And uh, so in doing so, I'm going to talk about the history of software, uh, the implementation of SOA, service-oriented architecture, SAAS, software as a service, and the evolution of business enterprises from ASP to microservices and all the stops in between. So before we uh, go into the actual history, we have to come to grips with software development itself. Now, it, it has a basis in, in math, uh, math history. And so the terms and terminology that's used it follows along the constructs uh, exposed by mathematicians. Um, the four or five principal concepts that get thrown out or used 
all the time. Uh, I'll roll and describe those right here. Process. Process is a sequence of activities, tasks. So that's fairly straightforward. Method. Method is manner in which you go about achieving your tasks. So again, those two things seem to make sense. Framework. This is where things get a little bit more um, interpretive. So a framework provides structure and guidelines and a way to do something. So it's not a, it's a, it's prescribed path in a, in a way. And a methodology is an approach. So it further defines a framework. And it's a set of rules, methods, tests, activities, deliverables, processes, which serve to solve a specific problem and demonstrate a well-thought-out, defined, repeatable approach. Now, we take these concepts and we wrap them up into an architecture. An architecture represents the structure of a system, its elements, visible properties, and interrelationships. So those are the fundamental constructs that go into building or understanding software today. And they've been around since the beginning of software. So we're going to roll all the way back to the beginning of time in terms of software development and go from the very beginning when there weren't any and see how software has evolved and changed over time. So if we start the clock at day zero, we're probably going to go all the way back to 1939 with Alan Turing, who is the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. He wrote a paper back in 1936, on, uh, I believe it was called On Computable Numbers with an Application to the Einstein Problem, which is a decision problem. Uh, that paper is rather lengthy. I printed it out myself. I haven't had a chance to read through it all. Uh, and there is a much uh, more interesting paper on it. I think it's the annotated Turing. Um, Turing was a mathematician and a algorithmic specialist. He was a cryptographer. And uh, he developed and designed the Turing machine, a hypothetical device that could solve any mathematical computational expression as an algorithmic problem. So that's the, that's the inception of the concept of the computer and a software application. So in 1941, Conrad Zeus ran the first program. So we've got one guy now. First of all, we've got 1936, Alan Turing with a concept. 1941, Conrad Zeus with the first program that ran. And... Uh, Moving along, we get to 1945, where there's still one programmer in Base 32, one computer, maybe four, and uh, things are still quite small. Moving along to 1946, we got the ENIAC. Now, that had six regular programmers on it, and that was held by the U.S. government uh, to do specialized research. Now, in 1946, turning was appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire for wartime services. So that relates to what, what his, he was doing during, during World War II and the Turing machine and code breaking. Now, there's lots of uh, interesting stuff about his work. It only came about, uh, was released in 2012, 70 years later after his, uh, uh, after his work and uh, 100 years after his birth. Um, so it's largely about cryptoanalysis, and it's relevant today. So that work was fundamental in, in the creation of software development and uh, the theories and practices that, that went into his work 
um, are still practical today. And we'll get into the security side and the encryption side of things in another um, another show. Um, now, get back, getting back to our timeline, in 1950s, uh, that's when Core Memory first came out. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen Core Memory. Core Memory is a very physical um, wire mesh uh, with these iron, uh, look like washers, very heavy washers, uh, at each intersect point in the wire mesh. So you've got approximately, from what I can recall, uh, 16 to 32 pairs of wires arranged in a grid pattern. At each intersection point, there would be a washer um, hung around or um, where the wires would pass uh, from each direction uh, through the center of, of the washer. Now, th as electric current would pass through the wires, the washer itself, the core, would switch and move. So it was very physical, and you could see the state of it, and that was core memory. So if it was bent or twisted one way, it was a zero, and if it was turned the other way, it was a one. And so when you power it off, it would still be there. It was physical core memory. There's no way you can get around it. It was always there. So that was really kind of an interesting um, invention, and that allowed uh, technology to shrink down, albeit that isn't very small, but it certainly was um, uh, a, a better way to hold and uh, retain information from one power state to another. Uh, in 1953, we got Fortran. So Fortran is a programming language. It's a math-based programming language. And that was uh, one of the first languages. Uh, there was COBOL and a few others. But there weren't that many languages around at that time. Um, through the 50s and 60s, uh, there was a lot of software development. Software developers started becoming more more popular. Still, it was an academic exercise. The people that were doing software were engineers or pulled in from other disciplines. In the 1970s, we've got the waterfall mythology. So that actually brought about a theory on how to build software. So it broke it down into its aspects um, where we had um, phases of development instead of one monolithic concept, construct, where you just started something and it, you know, when you're done, it is over. In the water methodology, it broke it down into stages. So we had requirements, design, implementation, verification, and maintenance. So this is a, a fundamental pr process that allowed us to break software down into bite-sized chunks and allow us to focus on the needs of the software application that's in the requirements, the design, how we want the application to function, what we want it to achieve. Implementation is uh, how we're going to work with it and how we're going to actually build the code and how it's going to be deployed. Verification is the testing. And maintenance, of course, is how we're going to take care of the application once it's released in the wild. So that brings us all the way through to 1970s. And we've now gotten a fairly nice approach to developing and building software. Um, it's fairly well practiced. There are flaws in it. And I think what we're going to do is we're going to have a break now. And we'll come back and go over some of the flaws with the waterfall methodology. We've talked about them more in length at my 
previous uh, show, the first one, I believe. But we'll touch on a few of the caveats and water methodology and move on to object-oriented programming and what came next in the 1970s. So please stay with us, and we'll be moving on to software as a service, service-oriented architecture and microservices after this break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Private equity firms have over $1 trillion to invest. They are the biggest funding source for growing companies. Why do they reject 98% of deals? How do you get the right deal for your company? Join Kevin Fechtmeyer and his partners on the Deal Team 6 to uncover the next winning deal and avoid the financial landmines. Deal Junkie, Cracking the Private Equity Code, is broadcast live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your business running? It should be running smoothly with nary a hiccup, like a finely tuned machine. But if you're like most businesses, yours may be running nowhere close to that. Listen for Operationally Speaking with your host, Sergio Samel. Our program will help you to run your entrepreneurial business easier, better, with less frustration. And by running it well, you're sure to be poised for faster growth. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. How is your company's marketing plan? Could it use a little help? For most businesses, the answer is yes. Tune in each week to Marketing That Won't Break the Bank. Host Janet Kunst and her guests will show you how and where to bring your marketing to the next level. Each show will feature action strategies that you can implement right away and see results. We'll make this easy for you. Start by tuning in every Wednesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Thanks. I'm Martin Lacey, and let's get right back into where we were, talking about the waterfall methodology and uh, its current use right now. We're still making quite uh, active use of the waterfall methodology. It's practical. It allows us to uh, articulate how systems are built, make sure we get buy-in from our customers, and that the design matches the requirements and the implementation matches the design, and the verification is there to tile the whole thing together. So it actually works out very well in most business applications, software applications, not just business applications. Follow this general construct. Now, the larger the project, of course, uh, the greater uh, the number of components and the larger uh, amount of effort that has to go into building the application. So when you're dealing with waterfall and you're applying it to a large application, the timeline becomes stretched and the 
distance between requirements and verification uh, can become uh, exacerbated and uh, too large uh, for most companies to recognize that their uh, needs are being met by the time the implement implementation is ready for them to work with it. So that, that really is the crux of the problem with the waterfall methodology. Other than that, it's a solid way to approach a, a, a business problem and create applications for, uh, for businesses or for, or for any uh, venture. Now, this is still following a, a structured software development paradigm. Um, it is still following a delivery of an application that you install and run. Um, it's a monolithic, if you will, um, one set of code that you would install and run uh, on your machine somewhere. And at this time, we were also exploring distributed applications. So in the, or actually that's not quite in the 70s yet, I don't think. Uh, we weren't quite dealing with the networks at that point. But we were still, we had the concepts of breaking down applications into various components and had that um, componentized concept of breaking down responsibility of the application into functional areas. In the 1970s, also came along object-oriented programming, small talk. Now, it wasn't widely adopted in uh, small talk, certainly uh, isn't, hasn't been widely adopted. Uh, but the object-oriented methodology, the principles behind it, um, percolated and sat with the uh, uh, university and uh, intellectual groups uh, for uh, probably 30 years. Um, we only start seeing more of the object-oriented development in today's technology. Um, but we'll move on to that, and I'll get back to that. So let's go back to 1970s and object-oriented programming, small talk. We had structured programming, modular programming, limited object-oriented programming that was, again, uh, mostly in the academic area, component-based programming. Component-based structured programming, modular, are all kind of ways to say the same thing. It's how you gather and group your logic into bite-sized chunks so you don't share data, uh, your data, only the data that resides within the routine is the data that's necessary, nothing else, and you only pass in the data that absolutely has to be passed in, and you only go and ask for the data that you absolutely need. It's constrained by data and functionality, and that's how we get the modularity um, in the applications that we build. Object-oriented is another way of thinking about these modules. So it's broken, breaks programs down into classes and assigns their names. And it becomes more, more tangible, more realistic because you can assign and associate it to real-world objects. So when you're dealing with business applications, you can actually have a program that's called the invoice, uh, a line item. And each of these components or parts, objects, classes of the application have in themselves their own ways to access their data. They have their own processes, their own methods. So it became a way to encapsulate 
the roles and responsibilities of an application down to something that we can relate in a real-world sense. Now, of course, you can abstract that further and becomes less real-world, and it, it becomes uh, a hybrid or a, um, a specialization between two types of classes that don't, there isn't a real-world example of it. So, um, and we'll look at that in a, in a moment as we talk about um, zoological classification of systems. Now, in 1975, and that's where I really came onto the scene and, and started learning uh, software myself. So uh, I wasn't really involved in all this early um, design uh, breakdown and structure. Uh, thankfully, I came into it with all those um, lessons learned, all those uh, hard-fought battles uh, lost. <laughs> um, so in 1975, I learned Rocky Mountain ba Basic, Assembler, Hex, and thankfully, I had uh, the uh, ability to use high-powered computers, uh, which were called desktop calculators at the time, um, thanks to my father who worked for Hewlett Packard. So uh, through that um, angle, I, at a young age, I guess I was probably 12 years old at that time, starting to develop systems using these desktop calculators, which at that time were... Forty-five to hundred thousand dollars, and these toys, these uh, desktop calculators, engineering app, engineering machines, um, I got to use on the weekends and learn how to build software. So it was uh, quite a, an eye opener for me, and uh, something else for a twelve-year-old to get to play with. Now, in 1978, the C programming language came, was published. Now, how fortuitous is this? Now, I just learned Rocky Mountain Basic. I was learning Pascal. And uh, looking around to try and find something else that, you know, um, made more sense or was easier to use. And uh, I, I came across Kermit Hand and Ritchie's uh, C programming language. Um, started getting in onto Unix operating systems. And uh, that's really where I got my start is digging into the C language on Unix and uh, Xenix and Tenix and Linux uh, all the various variants of the Unix operating system, HPUX. Um, so, of course, I got the HP version uh, from all the Hewlett Packard computers I got through my father. Now, if we keep on rolling the time frame going forward, uh, we're getting up to the 1980s. Universities start getting the Internet. So this is for professors and graduate students. So the Internet's not even available yet for, for everybody. Um, it's just uh, institutions, it, it's the backbone. It was created, of course, uh, to guard against a nuclear attack and so that we have resilient nodes of communication throughout the uh, command infrastructure. Uh, universities started getting in, in on the backbones um, and providing access to the Internet to their professors for um, uh, doing research projects. Now, in 1983 and 84, uh, I actually had got my first contracting job doing co job costing and inventory management on a Unix, Unix and C language. Uh, that didn't go so well, but it was an experience in learning how to structure business applications and also how to do contracting, uh, learning experience in its own right. Now, in 1984... Uh, Molly Energy, a company that I had just started with, 
um, got their connection to the internet. They connected via uh, UBC as part of a research project. So that's how we first got our connection to the internet. And that's how businesses started uh, getting their access, is through connections to universities via research projects. Um, and in particular for myself, it was uh, molybdenum uh, disulfide research uh, for moly energy. Um, and through that uh, experience, of course, I got to use and get access to the internet, um, which was like eye-opener. Um, there was new tools and uh, things that were being put forward. Um, the Vi editor first came out. So this is the first uh, text-based editor. Of course, we still don't have a mouse yet. Uh, we're using uh, the arrows and typing things in. However, the Vi editor was a uh, complete uh, window, which was really cool. 1985, U.S. Department of Defense um, uh, creates a standard of work, including the six phases of the waterfall, primary design, detailed design, coding, and unit testing, integration, and system testing. So at this point, it, be, it codified the necessity for having this structured approach to software development. And that became the, the primary tenant for, for developing systems. Now, of course, the military is known for very large projects that overrun in time and cost. And the waterfall um, is a, a part of that problem in that it is, exacerbates issues over very large projects. And, of course, the military has very large projects, so it, it has the failings associated with that. Uh, we're now moving on to 1985-86. I'm going to try and speed this up a bit uh, when we come back from our break. I think I'll, uh, we'll take a break right now and we'll continue on 1985-86. And uh, we'll get into software as a service very sh shortly thereafter. So thanks for staying with us. We'll be back in a moment. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Today we live in a truly global environment. Business can more easily be conducted now in almost any part of the world. How do you, as a business owner or professional, navigate the ever-changing business landscape? Tune in to Leadership Beyond Borders with host Kimberly J. Lewis. With a worldwide resource of guests, you'll find out what opportunities and challenges surround diverse and virtual organizations. Listen live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Higher education faces lots of changes. If you are a student, educator, or in the workforce, you'll want to tune into Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. 
Your host, Dave Goldberg, and his guests will explore the innovations that higher education adopts as it reinvents itself. The world of higher education is constantly changing. Stay on top and stay ahead of the rest. Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the Kidstar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back. I'm Martin Lacey, and this is The Art of Software. We're talking about the evolution of software and meandering our way towards software as a service, service-oriented architecture. Currently, we're at the point in time of 1985-1986. So the Department of uh, Defense has just released their standard of work for software development. Uh, myself, I am working uh, for a company in Victoria, and we have just gotten a contract for this uh, farm tech project. Now, this was a, uh, uh, a really cool project funded by the Irish government, uh, one of the oil petroleum companies. I think it was ESO, but I can't really remember. And uh, the some other major party. At any rate, it was involving a lot of uh, SB-180s, Zilog Z-1000s. We wrote our own TCP IP uh, network. And the idea was to monitor um, a completely self-contained farm environment with our own network, uh, tracking the consumption of food by the animals and capturing the waste to create a methane, uh, cr- to go into a methane plant to create energy to, cr- to grow the plants that the animals would feed off of. Now, this was a really interesting self-contained network project, and we got the opportunity to write our own TCP IP stack and determine what information needed to be carried on it. Now, this was still following a, the standard development waterfall methodology, and it was a distributed network piece of software right, using our own implementation of TCP IP, Internet Protocol. In 1986, I got the opportunity to move and work with Sierra Systems at Microtel Pacific Research on a DAXCON uh, network project. It was, DAXCON stood for Digital Access Cross Connection, and that was a uh, comprised of an ISDN, DS1, DS3, uh, multiplexers and networks. It, it was the high-speed fiber network for Canada. And uh, I had the opportunity to spend my first, uh, I think, nine months or so working with Sierra Systems on that particular project. This was all written in C, very modular, 
very componentized, high speed. Uh, this software had to run, and we had to make sure it was extremely well tested. And so the principles for following the design, coding, testing, the whole structure was rigorously followed and tested. In the 1990s, the universities extended the Internet to the undergraduates. In 1993, the Mosaic browser came out. So we're still moving along. In 1994, Netscape beta came out. IPO, Netscape. Now, that, that's interesting because, of course, Netscape was just a browser. And, of course, on the merits of the browser, one application which provided access to the Internet and presented it in a nice graphical user interface, GUI, that was the subject of uh, IPO. So a company could go to town with that one business application. Of course, it's wide, widespread use, and that led to the fights between uh, Microsoft and all the other browser providers. You know, it was the browser wars and the bundling issues with Microsoft uh, that came out of that. Now, in 1995, uh, we came out with, not we, Microsoft, uh, came out with Windows 95 and IE 1.0 bundled in with it. So that was in direct competition with Netscape, who uh, just brought their IPO out the year previously. So you can see the, the battles are start doing and starting up at that point. And uh, you know, it came to fruition a few years later in the U.S. courts where there was an attempt to break Microsoft apart, but that didn't come about. Now, these applications were still following a basic monolithic type of uh, deployment. Um, even if it was distributed, you had modules, the modules themselves would be monoliths. So it, there wouldn't be a lot of access to the components or to the module itself except for one core interface that program would just run and it would be more of a program talking to programs if they did it all. Um, the programs within themselves follow the, the structure uh, of a well-organized application in most cases, but they didn't have that inter-networking play. So you still had a, a very um, uh, rigid implementation where you had uh, a lot of code in one place and no code in another place. So that was your, your mainframe, dump terminals, uh, power stations, microcomputers. This was the age of software, of, of, of systems that were standalone. Now, in 95, of course, that's when the uh, Windows 95 came out. There was previous version of Windows prior to that, of course. So, you know, personal computers were starting to come out. I saw my first one at UBC uh, a couple of years prior. Uh, it was still being, you know, an experimental uh, device at that time. So Microsoft came out with their version of Windows 95 on a cool PC, and we all went clamoring towards that way. Um, and that was, you know, the, the inception of personal computers. And the drive towards uh, a different paradigm for developing software. So computer, uh, personal computers ushered in this uh, concept of client-server. So now the machines that P 
people had at their desktops were not as dumb. They, they actually had computational capabilities and had their own memory and had uh, their own disk space. So there was an ability to actually put power and do things locally rather than pushing it all the way up to the server where the processing was done. And of course, that uh, allowed the other types of languages to come into play, like Powerhouse, SQL Windows. These were all tools that we built and worked with in the 80s and 90s. Um, they were awesome. Uh, they got the job done. Uh, we had some really great applications built with them. In 1998, uh, that was the days of the .NET early adopter. So I thankfully was uh, allowed to be uh, with the company I was with at the time, uh, an early adopter of the .NET uh, framework, and got a chance to go down to Microsoft and Redmond and uh, learn what they were building. Uh, from that, it was an eye-opener experience, and you could see where technology was going in this interconnected play of uh, components and uh, the component object model, COM. Uh, that was coming uh, and being proposed or pushed out by Microsoft. Now, that led into distributed N-tier development. Uh, so it's, when we talk about distributed and N-tier, N-tier being like N, as in the number, so any number of tiers. So distributed and N-tier are almost similar types of thoughts. Uh, the distributed is basically components running on any node, a computer, a personal computer or a workstation, some computational device, connected to other computational devices in an orchestrated fashion. So they can communicate, get work done, decide who does what. So you have functional tiers that do one type of application or one type of operation and other tiers that do other operations. When you look at it from a business application perspective, you could say that there is a user interface tier, one that uh, works with presentation of lines and uh, drawings and pages and uh, information such that we as humans can consume it and read it. Then there's the business object layer where the logic of the business and how the application behaves gets coded. So those are the rules and constructs for managing the data. And of course the backend uh, database where all that information is stored. The middle tier, again going back to the business object layer, could be any number of layers and tiers and interconnects and objects. So that all uh, works as a, as a series of components. Now, in, in, in uh, 2000, I joined uh, a financial a math company that uh, their product, software product, was an Excel add-in library uh, for uh, doing financial analytics. Now, that was really cool. Not really something I was totally interested in, but I was more interested in where they were wanting to go with it. And that was to expose and provide that kind of functionality to other applications or to, to, um, a, a, to other businesses other than uh, as an Excel add-in. So that was compelling and very interesting. And from that point on, we started working towards software as a service. Now... Software as a service 
let's come back to that. That is taking the software that we've built, it's been componentized, and we've packaged it up so that we could sell it on the internet rather than sell it as a packaged up product. So that really is, a, is the crux of the difference. So instead of being a math add-in library, so it's a product that you install and put on your machine, it was a service that you could access over the internet and it would do valuations, do calculations uh, on your financial models. So that was, that was a, a, a fundamental switch. It was quite interesting and change for me to learn how to do that. Now, in 2002, as part of this whole process, the C-sharp language came about. Now, that is where I really got into object-oriented technology. So that's, C-sharp is C, uh, which is a very uh, high-power uh, development language, structured, methodol uh, structured. It's, uh, it's, it's just been around for ages, as I said. Um, Colonel Hannah created it years and years and years ago. Uh, but C-sharp is the object-oriented version of it, so that provides classes and all the best things about uh, object-oriented that uh, I can think of. Uh, it looks like we're going to go to a break here. I'm going to take a quick moment, get a drink of water, clear my throat, and we'll come back and resume. So thanks for staying with us. I'm Martin Lacey. This is, software, this is the Art of Software and software as a service coming up. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In this fast-paced, technologically driven world of business, the stress can be crushing. It's exhausting business leaders and burning out good employees. It is not enough to work from the top down. We must now learn to work from the inside out. Listen to Innovative Mindful Solutions with Terry Geller. We will discuss ways to transform roadblocking emotions using mindful-based tools you can incorporate into your business and your life right now. Don't stress. Tune in every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on The Voice America business channel moving forward can be difficult to do sometimes there is always something going on many times nobody else knows exactly what you're going through if you are experiencing pain or loss even something unexplained that is missing in your life you'll want to tune into go for it with host joe hausman joe and her guests will show you laughter and love Sometimes you just need something a little positive in your week. Make that spot Thursday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software. 
with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back, and uh, thanks for joining me again. This is Martin Lacey with The Art of Software. We're jumping right back into service-oriented architecture and uh, reviewing an application that I was lucky enough to be a part of building back in 2002, and that was uh, creating a software-as-a-service implementation of a service-oriented architecture for a financial uh, service business. Now, so let's have a look at what uh, came out in 2009 related to the service-oriented ar architecture. Now, at that point, um, we'd already been really practicing a service-oriented architecture from a conceptual point of view. In 2009, uh, there was the manifesto released, which described all the work leading up to that point and tried to concisely describe what exactly a service-oriented architecture was. So let me just sort of restate exactly what they came up with. Service-oriented architecture is less about how a modularized an application and more about how to compose an application by integrating distributed, separately maintained, and deployed software components. It enables it's enabled by technologies and standards that make it easier for components to communicate and cooperate over a network, especially an IP network, IP being internet protocol. So really that applies to everything that we've built so far, but it gives uh, the definition there really switches the focus from the software itself, the, the application, the components, the logic to the interconnect between the components themselves and how they are orchestrated and communicate with one another. So the service-oriented architecture is really more of an evolution of the concept of a modular, modular application or distributed application so that the communication and instructions of what the overall application is to do is done with components that can be independently built and applied to the network. And I think that's really the crux of this. The service-oriented architecture allows you to build modular components that are individually deployable and can fit into the network while it's running. That's a nuance to it. Um, and it, it, it's more of the way things are moving today with the deployment as a service where you're having to, the ability to uh, turn on servers, turn on uh, applications, distribute those applications on the internet, on the cloud, and have those available to your customers. So everything is really building up on, onto, uh, uh, onto one another as we go through this chain of development of building applications, they get more and more complex based on the work that's been done in the previous iteration of software. So when we take a look at the service-oriented architecture and the manifesto that it purports, 
it's all about the communication and the networking. So it's not really so much as the applications themselves, it's how the applications expose themselves and communicate. Now, there's something that's come about now too, and that's called microservices. So microservices, there's no real clear definition of what a microservice is. And really, uh, my personal view on that is because you've got service-oriented architecture, which is the, the structure, the idea, the concept between components talking to one another. Microservices is a statement as to the size and complexity of the individual components. What is the needed complexity and size of, an any, of any of the components? It's really something that is driven by your problem domain, how your business runs, what makes sense to encapsulate functionality within uh, that particular routine. Now, for example, uh, when we did this at the financial service company, it was all based on financial models. Financial models have, a, have interrelationships between one another and how they function they have classes of financial models that behave a particular way. And some models are complex in that they are built on top of other models. So you end up with a financial topology, a financial infrastructure math set of uh, routines dealing with uh, all the financial analytics in the world today structured and organized in a zoological classification system according to their functional roles and responsibilities. So instead of the uh, following the uh, typical zoological classification of biological types, genus, and species, we would organize based on business functions within the process or activity. A workflow may interact with many different business functions through its life cycle, and that would be orchestrated as part of the service-oriented architecture. So the architecture itself is the, is the song, whereas the programs, the components are the notes. And it's how you put all these things together to make a beautiful music or to create chaos. And I think that's, that's really the, the, the most elegant way to relate to software components. Now, if we if we took in a, another stab at it, we look at service-oriented architectures uh, with the aim to combine large chunks of functionality to form applications, which are built purely from existing services, combining them into ad hoc in an ad hoc manner. Now, ad hoc, I I don't really adhere to that because you're doing it uh, with intent and purpose. So you're putting these components together, not really ad hoc. Um, the components themselves are built so that they can be put together ad hoc, but when you're building an application, it's with intent and purpose. So you're going at it with a, a, a particular idea and concept in mind, and you're assembling those components and providing those, those components orchestrated as a service. Now, when you're dealing with service-oriented architecture, uh, the applications themselves have to be self-describing. So 
today we use XML, the extensible markup language, to describe the metadata or to, to contain the metadata, the data which defines the interfaces themselves. So when you have a program and you know it has an interface, this is the call and the, the signature, the, the parameters you pass into it, that is defined as a signature. And that signature is described in an XML schema. That XML schema is packaged along with your program so that another program can look at it and understand what the interfaces are and make use of those if it thinks that those interfaces are something that it wants to. Now, the binding and connecting of these services into an orchestrated application is done by an application developer or an architect. So you end up with an application that achieves something of value by integrating these components and knowing how to do that. Now, when you take those components, the, the service-oriented architecture, and you package it up so that you could sell it on the internet, it now is software as a service. So the capabilities provided by the orchestration of web services and a front end, so the front end being a user interface, gives you that nice cohesion of usability and serviceability from an application perspective so you can maintain and keep it running, replace components that are failing, or improve them, and extend the model by adding new components and revising the application infrastructure to make use of those components. So it's a way to naturally and organically be able to create and build an application and allow it to grow. Now I see we've only got a few minutes left here, so I'm just going to quickly try and jump into one other interesting aspect of building applications. Now, a lot of times you don't have the opportunity to build an application with the idea of a service-oriented architecture or software as a service going into it. You actually have to start from wherever you was left off. So uh, in the case of your standard business application, you're taking over from an existing application and trying to move it forward. And that is, uh, you know, a, a challenge into itself where you're taking something that's component-based and moving it into an object-oriented or a service-oriented uh, pattern. At Captain, uh, which is my current client, this is exactly what we're trying to achieve. And we actually have achieved it. Uh, we moved from an ASP, ASP.NET web-based architecture to a, to a microservice architecture. Unfortunately, I don't believe we'll have enough time to actually get in to talk about microservices as we've implemented them. But I will let you know that they are indeed running as services, web services, Windows services. Uh, Windows services meaning that they come up and uh, run uh, as soon as the, as the machine starts. So this is where we're actually moving the microservices into being part of the machine and so that they're actually uh, installed and configured to run when the machine comes up. I hope today's walk through history and the evolution, not revolution of software development, has been insightful to you.
We'll continue on this discussion next week as we move on into cloud computing, what that really means, uh, how companies are adopting it, and the way software as a service is moving into the cloud paradigm. So please stick with us and come back again. Thanks for being with us. This is Martin Lacey for the Art of Software. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.